I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Romans chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, the last four chapters of the book of Romans. In chapter 13, we have some interesting verses on government authority, beginning with chapter 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore you must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. In this passage, Paul makes an appeal for believers to be subject unto the higher powers. The word powers there is translated from the Greek noun exousia, meaning authorities. Notice how carefully worded that sentence really is. He didn't say, obey every law. He does seem to indicate, however, that Christians should respect the law and comply whenever possible. Of course, Paul was aware of Old Testament examples like Daniel, who found it impossible with a good conscience to comply with every detail of the new law that had been decreed by Darius in Daniel chapter 6. Notice the last part of verse 1 where he says, The powers that be are ordained of God. When tempting Jesus, Satan makes a noteworthy statement in Luke chapter 4 verse 6 when he says, The devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. According to the implications of Satan's statement there, even Satan's power was given to him by God. It's a bad testimony for believers to flaunt the law. However, when scriptural principles are clearly violated by the law itself, actions like those of Daniel are completely appropriate. Incidentally, the consequences for resisting the ordinances of verse 2 well, it says is judgment, the Greek word krima. Sometimes condemnation, as in damnation, may be gleaned from the context when krima is used, but strictly speaking, krima simply means judgment. When the prefix for against, the Greek prefix kata, is added, making the Greek word kata krima, that's always clearly to be understood as condemnation. So it's not clear in the wording of the text here in this passage for whom the judgment comes, whether it's God or the ruling authorities. You'll need to make the call on that one yourself. Paul extends his comments on civil obedience by pointing out that this obedience goes for paying taxes as well, seen in verses 6 and 7 here. 
Now, there are three different Greek words used in these verses to fully project the believer's obligations regarding taxes. In verse 6, it says, For for this cause pay ye tribute. The Greek word there is phoros. Pay tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. And then in verse 7, it says, Render therefore to all their dues. The Greek word therefore dues is ophile. Then it goes on to say tribute to whom tribute, and the Greek there is phoros, tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom, the Greek word there is telos, to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now the Greek words used in this passage are to be distinguished as follows. Phoros means when one country controls another country, this is the tax paid to the foreign country. Telos is the word. It's a bit more general in describing taxes. He's probably using this word to describe funds collected to support the infrastructure of a country, as in roads and security and so forth. And then the word ophile, this word embraces everything due to be paid, including fear and honor. It would appear that Paul's goal in these verses is to be as comprehensive as possible in describing the believer's obligations to the government. In other words, he didn't want to provide any excuse for Christians to resist the government short of that government simply making laws that blatantly conflict with our Christian walk. In that context, we have several examples in Scripture, well, like the ones that I'm about to list for you. Jesus said in Luke chapter 20, verse 25, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. Now you recall that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down in Daniel chapter 3. Bad law. Immoral law. Daniel, of course, resisted the law in Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Another bad law. And then Peter declined the Sanhedrin mandate that he stopped preaching in Acts chapter 4. Despite this refusal to comply, Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the following, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. And finally, Paul wrote to Timothy these words in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-3. through 3. I exhort therefore that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. As believers, our scriptural mandate is quite clear. Pray for our leaders and understand that God allows them to be where they are. Give them their due. But at the same time, follow the lead of Daniel, Peter, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego when it comes to laws that infringe upon our relationship with God. Next, let's treat people as we'd like to be treated. We see that admonition in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Verse 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now let's not go extreme here. Verse 8 is not to put a stop to borrowing. It's an admonition to pay your debts in a timely fashion as agreed upon. These verses encourage a positive Christian testimony. Matthew chapter 5, verse 42 says, Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. So you can see that the very acts of borrowing and lending were not condemned by Jesus. Paul emphasizes that Christian conduct governed by love for his neighbor is our standard. He makes reference to the summary Jesus gave to the law in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Both Paul and Jesus emphasize that the second half, meaning the last five of the Ten Commandments, which outlines man relationship, are embodied in one rule of thumb, and that rule of thumb is love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 9, Paul names these five and emphasizes that they deal with neighbors' relationships with their neighbors. If you'd like to see a summary of the Ten Commandments, there's a link provided for you on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. Or you can go to the topic section of BibleTrack.org and there you will find the um, uh, link under the topic section called the Ten Commandments. So to sum it up, uh, Paul in verse 10 here makes the point that brotherly love embodies the last five commandments of the Mosaic Law. In chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, we find an admonition to put down that flesh. Verse 11, And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So Paul concludes this chapter with a pep talk about priorities in light of the urgency of the hour. His terminology references the appearance of Jesus Christ, meaning the rapture. As saved people, let's live like saved people. Put away the old ways and follow after righteousness. Verse 14 is accomplished as we are led by the Holy Spirit. When we read our Bibles and pray and fellowship with other Christians and then share our faith with others in some aspect of ministry, the Holy Spirit's power is strengthened in our lives, giving us the ability to overcome the tendencies of the flesh. I've written an article entitled How to Develop Good Spiritual Hygiene. I'd recommend reading that if you've not read it before. It's under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, or if you're following along on the written notes for today's reading, there's a link right there. Paul speaks in this verse of not even making provision for the flesh. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Love this verse. It concerns uh, how our thought processes work. Listen to it. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Here it is. When you're controlled with the Holy Spirit, your thought life will be godly. And when your thought life is godly, your actions will follow. The Holy Spirit-led believer steers clear of those actions which would compromise his testimony. 
In chapter 14, we get a definition of what exactly is legalism. Verse 1, Him that is weak in the flesh receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks, and he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now Paul gets into the discussion of what many today refer to as legalism. This word is terribly misused in today's society among Christians. Often legalism is used to describe the set of values any Christian observes that's more structured than those of the name-caller. Well, that's not legalism. A legalist is actually someone who has set a record of specific extra-scriptural values that he imposes on others as a universal standard for pleasing God. James 4.17 says this, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Now James is talking to believers in this verse, and he gives the definition of sin for the believer. A legalist is not content with the confines of this verse. He would broaden it to include his own standard list, a recorded list of sinful items as an addendum. Such is the case with the illustration Paul gives in the first 12 verses of Romans chapter 14. Now before we look specifically at the verses themselves, a little context might be helpful here. This discussion continues on into chapter 15 where it transitions into the peaceful coexistence of Jews and Gentiles within the body of Christ. That would lead us to believe that the issues of legalism mentioned in this chapter might have been those along the lines of, well, those who were raised as Jews and those who were not raised as Jews or Gentiles. The anchor for this discussion is verse 1, which says, "...him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations." Who is this weak-in-the-faith person that Paul's referencing here? While the Greek verb for weak, used here as astheneo, often speaks of physical ailments, here context tells us that we're looking at spiritual weakness. Moreover, this verb is used as a Greek present active participle indicating a continual practice of exercising weakness in the faith. If you'd like some further insight into Paul's terminology of being weak in the faith used here, 
Let's take a look at the reference in Romans chapter 4, verse 19, where there he speaks of Abraham's strong stand on God's promise and identifies Abraham there as being not weak in the faith. Paul uses this term weak to describe immature believers repeatedly in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Specifically, a weak believer is one who doesn't rely on the internal leadership of the Holy Spirit for his decisions, but the weak believer is more comfortable having his conduct legislated by other people. Not only so, whether they would admit it or not, those who legislate godliness are categorized by Paul in this passage and in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as weak as well. In this verse 1, Paul says that these believers should be received into the fellowship, but not to, it says, doubtful disputations. In other words, disputes over opinions. Let's face it, a legalist can wear you down with his list of artificial standards. He often has a way of making everyone around him feel inferior if they don't comply. Ironically, these weak-in-the-faith people often display themselves as strong believers when in fact the opposite is really the case. The first issue of legalism in verses 1-4 through that Paul deals with in this passage is the vegetarian diet, for which there, by the way, is no scriptural precedent. Now, the one who observes the vegetarian diet exercises his own personal Christian liberty. Well, that's until he begins to use his practice as a test for spirituality in others. Then he's become a legalist. In other words, he's one of those people who is weak in the faith. However, for those who prefer a vegetarian diet for themselves, but they don't seek to use it as a test of spirituality in others, they're not guilty of legalism. Now, here's another common problem. When the meat eater becomes critical of the vegetarian's choice of diet, even though the vegetarian doesn't make it a test of spirituality in others, the meat eater is at that point trampling on the vegetarian's Christian liberty. So you see, we have both extremes in our world. Vegetarianism is a choice. If you try to insist others practice it as a test of spirituality, then you're a legalist. If you accuse every vegetarian of legalism, even though they don't impose it on others, you are, well, you're just shallow in your understanding of the Christian life with your own set of unscriptural issues. Paul then deals in the same context in verse 5 with special days of observance. Probably the Sabbath day is in view here. There was likely a minority of Jewish believers in the church located in Rome who, it appears, still observed the Sabbath day being sundown Friday to nightfall on Saturday, and they did so as a matter of Christian practice. Naturally, in Rome, you would have had people on both sides of the fence. The Gentile believers, having never observed such, probably proclaimed, you don't have to do that anymore. Many of the Jewish believers probably proclaimed, you can't be a good Christian without observing the Sabbath day. However, since this issue probably contended along Jewish and Gentile lines, probably some of the new Greek Roman converts observed a few of their own special days as well. Paul indicates that it's just a matter of Christian liberty. Whether you choose to observe special holidays or not is simply not a test of spirituality. Paul then minimizes the importance of these kinds of disputes in verse 6. In other words, can't we all just get along? In verse 7, Paul says, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. In other words, the way I live my life has an impact on other people. 
I mean, it's just that way. People are watching. Christ told us we would be lights to the world in Matthew chapter 5. My life is all of Christ that many people will ever see. That's why it's extremely important that I conduct my life in such a way that others will respect the God I serve. In verses 8 through 12, Paul explained that this level of judging among believers doesn't glorify God. God will do the judging, and that's a point that he makes in verse 10 when he says, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Some Bible teachers refer to the judgment seat of Christ in this verse as the Bema seat instead. Now, the actual Greek word for judgment seat in this verse is Bema. Uh, really, it's, it's Bema to be pronounced as is traditionally pronounced with Greek words in the long eta sound. And the bema is defined as being a raised platform mounted by steps and usually furnished with a seat used by officials in addressing the assembly, often on judicial matters. Bema is only used 12 times in the New Testament. Ten of those occur within this scenario right here. Only here in 2 Corinthians 5.10 does Bema actually refer to the judgment by Christ of believers. In other words, Paul fully intends to describe this judgment of believers as a future event patterned after a court appearance like we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. It's on this basis that verse 12 is written, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, one more thing that I'm going to throw in for free right here is the fact that Bema means judgment seat. So when you see people write Bema seat, then that's like saying judgment seat seat. Paul actually quotes Isaiah 45 verse 23 in verse 11 when he says, I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Isaiah is writing in this passage about the worldwide compliance that will be expressed one day toward the Messiah, and that's during the millennium. We have an admonition then in verses 13 to 23 to not injure the faith of another person. Verse 13, Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God, all things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. All right then, if you don't like the way I live my life, tough. <laughs> I've heard that from a number of very immature Christians over the years of my ministry. 
They abuse the concept of Christian liberty. When you choose to ignore the negative impact of a permissive lifestyle for yourself, aren't you also in violation of James 4.17? To him that knoweth to do good and doeth not to him it is sin. Perhaps the key words to that question are, choose to ignore. Please understand what verse 14 is saying. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. It's very immature of me to flaunt my rights in front of a legalist. The legalist, well, he lacks clear scriptural understanding, and as he referred to in verse 1, Paul refers to him as him that is weak in the faith. However, the mature believer with perspective on scriptural godliness, he'll practice restraint in his Christian life so as not to be offensive to the legalist. Those believers who disregard the feelings of the legalists are just as short-sighted in their Christian walk as the legalists themselves. Yeah, yeah, and I know you have rights. That's why Paul wrote in verse 17, where he even included drinking alcoholic beverage when he says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. When you care enough about your testimony, then you'll limit your conduct. Paul writes on this issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he sums it up in verse 33 by saying, Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. When you can say that with the Apostle Paul, then that's when we can say that you have a mature perspective of Christian living. Finally, Paul sums up the argument in verses 21 to 23. You see, it's a matter of surrendering your rights for the glory of God. A while back, I spent a few days in a forum with some missionaries who went back into the jungles of Africa and South America, leaving everything of value behind, and they did that to minister to previously unreached tribes for Christ. They built huts among the tribal folks, learned their language by listening and living among them. And they did this over a period of 20 to 30 years. And it was over that period that they were able to reach these people for the first time ever with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I see that kind of willingness to sacrifice one's life for Christ, how can I possibly consider it too much for God to ask me to limit my Christian liberty just a little bit so as not to cause others to stumble? Verse 21 says that it's not acceptable to make weaker brothers stumble. Verses 22 and 23 elaborate going so far as to say that when one doubts his impact on the weak brothers, he should just restrain his conduct. Not doing so becomes a violation of James 4.17. Now that thought, by the way, continues on into chapter 15 here. Verse 1, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. 
Paul finishes up the discussion of chapter 14 on the weaker brethren here in chapter 15. You notice that Paul uses the word strong for the first time in this discussion. Having clearly established that people who abide by external list as mandates, that those people are weak, according to chapter 14, here we find that those who understand that real godliness is based upon spirit-led principles, well, those people were referred to here as strong. In these verses, Paul places the burden upon Christians with spiritual understanding, in other words, the strong, to set an example before the weak believers so they won't stumble. That's not fair, you might cry out. Well, here's the deal. They need maturity in scriptures, but you have no ability to help them with that if you're offensive to those people. Then the example of Christ in verse 3. He gave his life for the spiritually needy. How much are you willing to give? Paul quotes here from Psalm 69, verse 9, when he adds, As it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. As Paul uses this messianic psalm of David to reference Christ, he then fortifies this example of Christ's submission in verse 4 by saying, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. In other words, could one's consideration in his lifestyle for the weaker brethren be greater than the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross? This Old Testament reference serves for our learning. We're therefore, verses 6 and 7, to modify our lifestyle accordingly and not struggle with the weaker brethren. The Old Testament prophets had an eye on the Gentiles. That's what we're going to see in verses 8 through 13 of chapter 15. Verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. So what's all this sudden talk of Gentiles in this passage? It would appear that perhaps the contention of Romans chapter 14 and chapter 15 was along the Jewish-Gentile lines. Now Paul seeks to legitimize the presence of Gentiles among these Jewish believers. In verses 9 through 12, Paul uses the Old Testament to demonstrate that it's always been intended that the gospel should be spread to the Gentiles. And in this passage, and I'm not going to go in detail here, look at the written notes if you want more detail, he quotes Psalm 1849, Deuteronomy 3243, Psalm 117.1, and Psalm 11.10, all of these to show that the presence of Gentiles among Jews in the new body of Christ was to be anticipated. So Paul here invokes the writings of Moses, David, and Isaiah to make his point. The Gentiles are a legitimate target of the gospel. So you might ask, how do these verses relate to the weaker brethren discussion of the preceding verses? 
Well, it's simple. The born-again Jews had a tough time turning loose of their legalistic lifestyles, while newly saved Gentiles had no such baggage as they came into their new life with Christ from heathenism. The admission here is for both categories of Christians to coexist together without agitating one another. There's a word that needs some differentiation here in verse 13. That word is hope. The Greek word for hope is elpis. Unlike our English word, which expresses perhaps some doubt, the Greek word literally means confident expectation. The connotation of the word expresses no doubt whatsoever. Our God is a God of confident expectation. As such, believers should abound in confident expectation by the indwelling influence of the Holy Spirit. And then Paul talks about his ministry to the Gentiles in verses 14 through 22. Verse 14, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, as putting you in mind, because of the grace that is given to me of God that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me, to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about into Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so I have strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. So finally, here Paul explains that his ministry is to the unreached Gentiles. In verse 20 he says, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. In other words, he set his sights on taking the gospel to new people. And that's why we have the gospel today, because Paul went to the Gentiles. Paul justifies this taking of the gospel to the Gentiles at the expense of time with the Jews, when he quotes Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, he does that in verse 21 here. He indicates that his ministry to the Gentiles has delayed his appearance to them in Rome, which he emphasizes in verse 22. And then in verses 22 to 33, Paul plans his itinerary, verse 23. But now having no more place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey, and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go into Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are, for if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. 
And I am sure that, when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service, which I have for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. In this passage, Paul talks about going to Rome and Spain, but to Jerusalem first. Well, if Paul made it to Spain, we we don't know about it. However, we do know that he made it to Jerusalem. That trip didn't turn out so well in Acts chapter 21. There Paul was arrested. Then, of course, from Acts chapter 21 to 28, we know that he did make it to Rome with Roman soldier assistance, of course. Incidentally, we see that Paul was apparently carrying some funds for the Jerusalem church provided by the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Notice what he says in that regard in verse 27 when he says, It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. And finally, we come to Romans chapter 16. And we get some some howdies to some folks in this chapter. Verse 1. I commended to you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrae, that you receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus who have for my life laid down their own necks, and to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinetus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia unto Christ. Greet Mary, who bestowed much labor on us. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Salute Apelles, approved in Christ. Salute them which are of Aristobulus' household. Salute Herodian, my kinsman. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Salute Trophina and Trophosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Salute Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Salute Philologus and Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympos, and all the saints which are with them. Salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. So, Paul sends greetings in this passage to the Romans that he knows. If you're interested in the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, I go down and cross-reference these people that are mentioned here with other places they're mentioned in Scripture. Uh, But we'll not include that in the podcast today. So um, finally, in verse 16 right here, we have that holy kiss thing. That's Paul's term in Romans chapter 16, verse 16. It was an expression of Christian love and was apparently restricted to one's own sex, and that's all we really know about that. 
And then we have some more meat here in chapter 16, beginning with verse 17 down through verse 23. And uh, it's an admonition to avoid those who cause division. Verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Timothy, my workfellow, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsman, salute you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. And Quartus, a brother. Well, verses 17 and 18 here make it clear that the New Testament local church thrives on unity, not division. Paul's doctrine was one of love. Division, of course, is contrary to love. Avoid people who cause division. Too many times local churches think it improper to eliminate those who are divisive. But here we see that Paul insists that that is exactly what should be done. While all division is injurious to the local assembly, Paul speaks specifically here of doctrinal division. In 2 John, we see his treatment of those who promote doctrinal error, the Apostle John, of course. Read the notes on that passage for a differentiation of what kind of doctrinal errors should adamantly be rejected. Verse 20 can be understood in two ways. When Paul says this, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The Greek verb for bruise here is santribo. That word implies a crushing or breaking. So is Paul referring to the breaking of the hold the false teachers of verses 17 and 18 have? That the hold shall be broken as represented metaphorically as the bruising of Satan? Well, perhaps so, but he may also be referring to the revelation of Jesus Christ at the rapture and subsequent second coming. It's really impossible to know for certain which of the two possibilities is intended to be understood here. In verse 21, we know who Timothy is. That's Paul's ministry companion, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. They are identified as kinsmen, as in relatives. Tertius is Paul's stenographer for this letter to the Romans. Paul's host in Corinth, Gaius, is mentioned in verse 23, along with Erastus and Quartus, about whom not much is really known. Now it's time to say goodbye. And we find the goodbye in verses 24 through 27. Verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of the faith, to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Now these last four verses fully describe the ministry of Paul. He gave us the gospel that had been hidden in ages past, but was now made manifest through the work that God had appointed him to do. Paul's writings tie together the mysteries of the ages with regard to the Messiah. 
So what exactly is that revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, about which Paul here is speaking? Well, Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says this, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Well, it's not a mystery anymore. Through Paul, verse 26, we're told, it's been made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. And that concludes our study of the book of Romans. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walker.